Revelation chapter 14. And then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and a loud, like a loud peal of thunder. Then the sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. <clears throat> they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they were blameless. And so the opening verses here in chapter 14, they show the 144,000, and they step foot on Zion. And Zion is just uh, the hills around Jerusalem. The ancient name for hills that make up Jerusalem. It's the place where the Messiah gathers his redeemed and reigns over the earth. And you can read about that for extra credit in Psalm 48, Isaiah 43, Joel 2, Obadiah 17, and 21, and Micah 4. And, you know, so just have fun with that. But the 144,000, so many people talk about what are the 144,000? The Jehovah's Witnesses think that uh, there are 144,000 of them. And they kind of ran out of that number, and so they had to change their theology a little bit. No, it says specifically in Scripture, there are 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And we even go into the great depth of naming each of the tribes of Israel. And it says right here, as we're reading, these are those who did not defile themselves. And he talks about their character. We'll get into that. But they are standing there with Jesus, victorious, at the end of the tribulation. Again, as we're going through this little pause in the section, it's, it's very difficult for us Westerners to kind of understand the chronology of, of Revelation because it keeps on going and then backing up and then going and backing up and going and backing up. And here we're in one of those back things again where we're getting the whole big picture, the return of Christ. And so as we proceed ahead, we're going to jump back and go through it again just kind of keeps on getting more intense each time you go through it. But we see here the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, victorious at the end of the tribulation. God sealed them. No one should touch them. And what happens when God says it? It happens. They're good. Notice they had a seal on their foreheads. What was the seal on their foreheads? the name of Christ and their father. And they're walking around with, you know, that's pretty intense. I mean, who tattoos something on their forehead? Not very many people, unless they're very serious about something. But if we remember in the back of uh, Revelation chapter 13, it talks about a mark. Says so the Antichrist, he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. So we see that the Antichrist has a mark also. And it says there in verse 18, this calls for wisdom, and if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for, it's, for it is the number of man, 666. His number is 666. And so you see this correlation between the mark of God upon his chosen people 
and the mark of the Antichrist on his chosen people. There's always this evil parallel that's going on with the enemy. He's always trying to rip us off, give us something false, put something in the place of us. And how many of us in our lives have have gone for relationships that we shouldn't have gone after because they were shiny and pretty, like I was talking about, uh, you know, to the junior high group. Oh, it looks so cool. How many have gone after investments, after different things, you know? I mean, yes, it's okay. We're all dumb together, you know? (laughs) We're all human, right? But the enemy, he's nonstop in our society and our culture to place things that are like that apple in the Garden of Eden. It looks good for food. It's shiny and pretty. It looks like all the other good things that God created, but in the end, it leads to death. Like I was chatting with, uh, you know, the junior hires, uh, when you see something shiny and pretty, that means stop, hold on, reevaluate. Is this of the Lord or is it something to draw my heart away from him? I want to be drawn to Jesus. And sometimes, you know, what looks shiny and pretty to Jesus is not going to the cross. Thank the Lord. He chose to submit to the will of the Father. So as we're looking at these guys, they had this seal on their forehead, the real deal. And obviously this is in contrast with the mark of the beast. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about the mark of 144,000 on their foreheads. He says, And who were these people having his father's name written on their foreheads? Not B's for Baptists, not W's for Wesleyans, not E's for the established church. Obviously, this is a while ago, right? They had their father's name and nobody else's. What a deal of fuss is made on earth about our distinctions. We think such a deal about belonging to this denomination and the other. Why, if you were to go to heaven's gate and ask if they had any Baptists there, the angel would look at you and not answer you. If you were to ask if they had any Wesleyans or members of the established church, you know, oh great, I printed it down front and back. He would say, nothing of the sort. But if you were to ask him whether they had any Christians there, he would say, hey, an abundance of them. They're all one now. All called by one name. The old brand has been obliterated, obliterated, right? And now, they have not the name of this man or the other, but they have the name of God. Even their father stamped on their brow. And that's the awesome thing about us, that we can go on the other side of the world and be in the middle of a jungle and not even be able to communicate in English, but they are our brothers and sisters that we're able to walk down the street and someone who actually shakes a tambourine and, and, and goes crazy for the Lord and stands up, that somehow God loves them too, believe it or not. Isn't that kind of prideful to say? Because they're probably looking at us going, wow, God loves those people too? <clears throat> yeah. Now, yes, we need to guard theology. We don't sacrifice Christ on the cross. These things are important. We, thought we, we know that. But there's so much that divides us. So much divides us, and the division is, is, I think, is a work of the enemy. He divides and conquers. Imagine if people in this valley got together and loved people with the love of Jesus. We major on the majors, minor on the minors. That's exciting. May the Lord do it by His Spirit. 
144,000 sing a song that only could be learned by them. They worshiped in the presence of God. You know, you have a song to sing to the Lord. You have a song to sing to the Lord. He's redeemed you in a way that he hasn't redeemed me. Yes, by the blood of Jesus, there's only one person through which we're redeemed. But the things he's taken you from, the things he's taken you to, the very fingerprint on your finger declares this. You are an individual before God created in his image. And there's a song that you must sing. It's for you. No one else can learn it. But they had this song that no one else could learn. And also notice the character of these guys. They were undefiled. They were virgins. (laughs) The society just looks at that and goes, that's dumb. They were undefiled. No lie was found in their mouth, and they were blameless. I look around, and it's just full of lies and full of sexual immorality, full of pulls on us, you know, in every way, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that the world we live in? The things that God adores aren't necessarily the things that man adores, amen? They're also described as the first fruits. Many believe that they were the first fruits out of the great tribulation to be saved, you know, through their, the mark that God chose to uh, identify with them. And because of them, they had that great harvest of souls through Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 14, where it talks about this great harvest of souls, innumerable people. And they follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's precious. Kind of reminds me of the disciples. They got to follow him wherever he went. And then I saw, verse 6, another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to the people to proclaim to those who lived on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe and language and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. He obviously doesn't understand the seeker-friendly model. <laughs> we need to, uh, he didn't take a survey. He didn't, uh, you know, he needs to find out what, how, how you can reach different demographics. No, he just started, boom, the gospel. And it's not necessarily our abilities that get people to respond to the gospel. Actually, it's not. It's the message of the gospel that we're to proclaim in our life, in our actions, in word and deed, right? And it's up to the Holy Spirit to bring people to Him. That's God's job, people to respond. But our job is to be faithful to the message He's given us. Now, some have made this angel out to be something like technological, like a satellite. TBN has Angel 1 and Angel 17 and all these types of things you throw up there. And, you know, I don't you know, I, I highly think not because we're talking about angels, pretty much angels in here. <clears throat> Angel means messenger. I think sometimes we can get into some serious trouble when we try to put modern technology into the book of Revelation. I'm not saying, I, I just don't know. We don't have enough information. And I know the warning it says back here, it says anyone who adds and all that stuff to Revelation, yeah, I'm going to add the plagues to you. So I kind of stay away from that part. I give you speculation. There's a lot of math, a lot of guessing you know, but I'll let you know. But what it says is what we hold to. <laughs> Amen? Amen? I think we can get uh, a good idea. It says, notice the angel. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe and every people. I think this is a pivotal verse in understanding Matthew chapter 24. 
And th- again, this is my personal interpretation. Read Matthew chapter 24. I'll read it for you. But uh, chapter 24, verse 10, it says, At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And Jesus is talking, he's debriefing the disciples on the end of the world, right? And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this is the verse 14, the one I want to talk about. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. So uh, many people, I guess, believe that the end will not come until the church preaches the gospel in all the corners of the world. Now, I kind of look at it and go, the angel just did it. He flew over and he did that. Now, I love this about us. Oh, cool, then we don't have to preach the gospel to the corners of the world. Uh, No. No. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world to preach the gospel, right? Called them all and said, hey, I want you to go make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. How's that going? I always ask myself, how's that going? Are we hitting the mark, you know? You're great, but I have this against you. I always remember those things. I always remember the good things too, but how are we doing on on making disciples from our kids? You know? That's an awesome ministry you have right in front of you. People at work, strangers, relatives. It's hard work. It's taxing on your soul. God will supply. But he says, you know, hey, this is what we're to do. So this angel, very interesting. He goes and he proclaims the eternal gospel to all the nations during this time of wrath upon the earth. And the end will come right after that happens. And so, obviously, this is speaking towards the end of the tribulation. So the in, and then it says, uh, so now not only did the first angel, angel proclaim the gospel to all nations, but it also said in a loud voice, it says, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of the water. And so the angel is giving a divine warning. Turn to the Lord now. Give him glory. Worship him. People don't want to hear that. So what? <laughs> I like what Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11 says. You know this one. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And I love that song we sing. You know, uh, come now is the time to worship. Talks about bowing now instead of then. Want to bow our hearts now. Give glory to God now in our hearts. Not on that day of wrath when every knee will bow. 
And the second angel, verse 8, followed, uh, followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon is fallen. More on Babylon will come in, in Revelation chapter 17, but for now, it's enough to see it represents mankind in organized rebellion against God. That's what it represents there. Prophetically, Babylon sometimes refers to a literal city, sometimes to a religious system, sometimes to a political system, all stemming from the evil character of historic ba- uh, Babylon. Because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We are told that Babylon has led all nations into fornication. The main idea is spiritual fornication. We see that over and over. That the enemy wants us to be pulled away from our God to go worship other gods. Now, are we bowing down to sticks and stones? No. But there's the spiritual idolatry God talks about over and over again. The hearts of his people being drawn off, drawn away from him in so many different ways. He longs for us to be in his presence and to not go after these four things. And he's saying Babylon has fallen. Praise the day when that happens. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives its mark of his name. This is such a sad verse. It should break our hearts. It breaks God's heart. Last week we read about the mark that the Antichrist will cause all the people on the earth who wish to operate in his economy to take the mark upon their forehead or their right arm. Revelation thirteen sixteen. it also forced all the people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And it says, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. Again, that number is the number of man. That number is 666. And as I said last week, I believe that if you take this mark, you're done. You're finito. You know what I mean? You don't have a chance. But, you know, I think some good questions come up. But what if you take it and you change your mind? What if you said the sinner's prayer and were baptized and then you took it. What if? Sorry, I can't go beyond that. All I can do is what it says. (laughs) If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on their forehead or in their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out in full strength. They will be tormented with burning sulfur. I just hate reading about this. I don't like reading about people being tortured eternally. It's just something we can't comprehend as people. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and there will be no rest. Usually if something is important, God makes it pretty clear. It's pretty clear. Jesus spoke about this a lot. 
I think the next, you know, um, verse sums up what it's going to take for those people on the earth at that time not to do it. But again, don't take the stupid mark. This calls for patient endurance on the part of, of people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. If anyone's going to be living after Jesus, they're going to die. They're going to lose their life during this time. It's a serious deal. In Revelation 12.1, it speaks of the overcomers during this time. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's a heavy deal. To not love your life so much that you would shrink from death. And again, just imagine this, and I talked about this the other week. Your children are starving. You are starving. You don't have a job. All these things are happening. Social networks only can happen if you take the mark under this person. What are you going to do? And as I shared last week, I will never take the mark. Remember what Peter said. And I talked about it last week. He said, hey, okay, if you aren't taking the mark, that means you're willing to die for him. Well, the challenge to us, again, is are we willing to live for him? Are we willing to live for Jesus Christ today? To live as though our own lives are not more important than his will. That's the bottom line. To lay down my goals, my aspirations for all that he wants. What if he asked you to pack up and move to a different country? Or to move to San Diego, Lord forbid. Like, I'm out of here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They shoot at you. No, I'm just kidding. I know, I love it here. <laughs> and so, I'm just saying. Think of the little things. Little things. All the way from little to, to large things. Okay, I want you to go ahead and give your retirement to this person that's hurting. What? That's, that's hard stuff. And I've known people who have made that decision because the Lord put it on their heart and God took care of them. But that was a huge decision in their own heart to say, Lord, I don't value my own life more than I value what you want. And if we want to live, truly to have life today, Jesus says you have to lay down your life and you will gain it. But if you hold on to it, if we hold on to ourselves and our own ambitions and what we're going for, we will lose it. It's the upside-down kingdom. And so press into that. Beware of the shiny and pretty things that pull us one way or the other. So those who wish to follow Jesus and overcome are going to lose their lives. They're going to die, but they won't, they won't experience the lake of fire. And then verse 13, then I said, I heard a voice from heaven. It says, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, from their deeds, for their deeds will follow them. I mean, how many of our future brothers and sisters are going to take comfort in this verse, knowing that they're going to die, that they're going to be blessed, and that their deeds will follow them? The things they did on this earth are going to go with them into the throne room of the king. It's going to be hard times. 
They have a promise that the works are going to follow them. And I looked, verse 14, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. We know this to be angels, not, not Jesus, as we'll explain here. How different it will be to see uh, this situation happen. If we read in uh, if we read in Matthew actually Matthew chapter thirteen. Well, actually, you know, what? let me read a little bit more. I'm sorry, printing on the front and back drives me crazy. It says, "Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to, uh, voice to him who was seated on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe." And this word ripe means overripe. I mean, it's just like bursting. It's ready. And so he was seated on the clouds, swung the sickle of the earth, verse 16, and the earth was harvested, verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called out in a loud voice to him, well, the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine. Because its grapes are ripe, and the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the weeds. And so we see uh, Jesus tells a story to try to help people understand this. He says, Jesus told them in Matthew 13, 24, and we'll end with this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemies came and he sowed weeds among the wheat, and they went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where in the world do the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Well, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds... You may also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then a few verses later, Jesus' disciples come to him. They left the crowd, went into a house, and they said, Hey, man, explain this to us, please. We don't understand what's going on. And he answered, and he said, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. That's you. Hopefully. Amen? The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Interesting. That little verse again. So here we have the angels coming to reap the world. Those who are Christ are reaped to him. Those who are the enemies are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath the judgment. There isn't a middle category, is there? You're either in or you're out. You look around this world, 
They're either in or they're out. I used to do that in California. Drive, you know, because you'd just basically be stuck in eight lanes wide of traffic, going two miles an hour, miles on end. You just look at all these people and go, they're either in or out. And it overwhelms you. And they were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and the blood flowed out to the press, out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles, basically. This probably describes blood splattering up to the horse's brow. It's probably just an idiom for it's going to be bloody. There's a lot, a lot going on there. We have a role to play in this. Each of us. You aren't all called to stand up here and bore people for a half hour, right? Some of you are called to go out and teachers and parents and you know engineers and all those things that God's called you to be grandparents and little kids whatever God has given you do it with all your heart remember the focus is the end when we're going to stand before him and say what did you do with my son what have you done with the gospel and I keep on remembering that you guys ever seen Schindler's List? And Schindler's standing there at the end and he looks and all of a sudden he realizes he has a watch on and he could have bought one more Jew. And he's just breaking down. He's ah, oh, here, take it. Can I just have one more? I don't want us to get to the place at the end of our lives where we're like, oh man, what a waste. What a waste. I could have done this or that. Now obviously we're going to have regrets. But his love has been poured out to you. And it's through us that he's decided to pour that love out to the world. What a privilege, amen? So as you go, and as you're in the hospital, you have an opportunity to minister to nurses and people around you. As you are getting your car repaired, all frustrated, you have people around you. When the bill collectors call, preach the gospel to them. <laughs> They'll stop calling, right? <laughs> They'll hang up on you. <laughs> I know. Every single opportunity. If there's sin in our lives that are keeping us from being fruitful, turn from it. Turn to Jesus. Let him love you. Let him fill you with his joy again. Because the end of those who are going to be in this pit. We don't want to have anything to do with that type of stuff. Jesus wants us to be in the world, but not of it. So let's be in it, fully engaged, but not of it. Amen? All right, love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We, we just, these verses, these chapters aren't the good, touchy-feely, feel-good chapters, God, where we get excited you know, it's just, it's hard to understand that you are not only a God of love and patience, but you're also perfect in your wrath. I don't like to emphasize that about you, Lord, but I can't go around it. Here it is. Fill us with Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. 
Let the gospel be on our minds. Help us to be bold, Father. And Lord, let the chips fall where they may, whether people receive it or not. But we do ask for a harvest now so they won't be harvested then. In the name of Jesus, amen.